This is episode 123 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Jennifer S. Kelly. Jennifer is an author and freelance turf writer. Her first two books, Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown, and The Foxes of Bel Air, Gallant Fox, Omaha, and The Quest for the Triple Crown, chronicle the lives and careers of the first three American Triple Crown winners. She also contributes to The Racing Biz, America's Best Racing, and Twin Spires Edge. Jennifer's work focuses on both the history of horse racing as well as current events, drawing on her deep knowledge and experience to share stories of the names and faces of this great sport. Settle up for a candid conversation about parenting while writing, the creative power of an hour alone, and why reaching out to fellow authors is a path to success. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I am so excited to have Jennifer S. Kelly back on the show to talk about her newest book. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome. Hi, Carly. Thanks. I'm so excited to be reunited with you. I'm so glad to have you back. We actually had a really fun chat before we began recording the show. And Jennifer <laughs> has some really exciting horsey news to share for her update uh, since the last time we talked. I know it. I'm excited. But you're going to debut it here. Go for it. <laughs> I have a couple of like fun things that I've done since my first book came out in 2019. And I was on the podcast last time. so. I wrote my first book, Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown, you know, like five years ago and finished it in 2018. It came out in 2019. And ever since it came out, I told my husband, I really want a tattoo of him because he's so meaningful to me, not just because I wrote a book about it, but because I feel like he got me restarted in this career and, you know, helped me realize his ambitions. And so I was like, I really want a tattoo, but I had a long drawn out process trying to find the right artist and trying to find, you know, a tattoo parlor and all that stuff. And so finally I happened upon a young woman named Audrey who did the sketch and she did a fantastic job and she's done another thing for me, which I'll show in a minute. And then I found a tattoo parlor in town that actually I was able to get into because after COVID, it got really, really challenging. A lot of the tattoo places in town were very booked and I, I worked my way into it. So January, I finally like bit the bullet and just got the tattoo and here it is. And he is so pretty. So this is Sir Barton and you can tell it's him by the blaze. Like I told the guy when I did and Audrey, when I did the sketch, like it has to be the correct. It has to look like him. And it very much does. And 
I have been just giddy ever since. And like, I can't wait to show it off <laughs> when I go and do in-person events this year, because it has been like literally five years in the, in the making. And so I am so thrilled to be able to show that off because I finally had that connection to him that I've been dying for since, you know, I first started the book and, and got to know him really well. <laughs> It's it's beautiful. And for, for people who aren't watching us on YouTube, uh, you had it done on your, it's going to look side. gorgeous when you wear a dress, by the way, mm -hmm. when you're doing signings, but describe how it is, how, where it is and why you put it over there. It's on my left side. So it's on my left bicep. I am left-handed. And so I wanted I have more than one tattoo and I wanted them as many as I could on my left side because I am left-handed, but I especially wanted him on my left side because, you know, your heart is right here and I wanted him close to my heart. <laughs> so that's why he's right there. And, you know, my husband is such a, a wonderful person. He was like, you go for it, you do it. And so anytime I got really nervous about putting something so broad, like out there, cause I'm you know, usually not that big of a person like I don't usually have a little bunch of tattoos where people can see him he's like just go for it just do it it's fine it's great okay good <laughs> thanks husband and then uh <laughs> and so he was and he was even there for part of the process and like watched the guy work and and everything and it was lovely so and then Audrey did for me my other horsey thing is like a couple of years ago I had this idea that since I've written this book and then my new one which is right here this one and it's about two horses this time, not just one. I wanted the three horses in a picture with me. So I sent my friend Audrey, who did the sketch, an idea like here. Can you do a commission where you have three of them looking over my shoulder while I'm working? And she's like, sure, I could do that. And this is what resulted. And I hope you guys can see it. And I'm sure... <laughs> Carly will uh, put up a better version of it, but she did an amazing job. She even incorporated me into it. Like if you look like there I am right there with the glasses on and everything, it cracks me up. So I'm very excited to tout Audrey because she's extremely talented. <laughs> I know the, the minute you showed me that picture, I'm like, oh my gosh, I want one I of those. It's, so, it's such a cool picture because it's literally where you sit in your mm -hmm. office with mm -hmm. you behind your computer and you are so cute popping up and all three horses that are so close to your heart that you've written about are over your shoulder watching you as you put yes. the words on the page. It's the know, it's coolest just, picture. I love and it. And I just, she, and I love the detail where she had, I think it was Omaha, like leaning in further so he could see better what was going on. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm done. I'm it's dead. Adorable. It's, <laughs> it's adorable. It's just way too cute. So. And, and I'm so excited that you shared that with me. Thank you. This is the first time you've debuted your new tattoo and shared about your the artists that helped yes. you achieve yes. a dream. That is so cool. I just, it, it's been, I love my tattoos. I've got, you know, like I said, I got like six, but I've always been really nervous about showing them off because I was a teacher for a long time. And so I really didn't want to be a distraction. Mm. But then now at this age, I'm like, whatever <laughs> and you've got a husband that's like go for it and, yeah and, and it makes you, know, you happy I clearly hear like you you did something you wanted to do and you were bold about it and now you have that to show off at your book signings on your left hand side oh, I, I can't wait well and you know it's par for the course because I don't think I would be here if I didn't have that gumption to just go for it mm -hmm. and just do it and you know it takes a lot of 
bravery to put yourself out there like that. And it's, you know, but I feel like if I don't do it, what opportunities am I missing out on? So I love the idea that I've got this and people can comment on it and we can bond over, you know, the idea that there's something that meaningful that you're willing to put it out there like that. So. Yeah. And what a great conversation starter, honestly, for your book. Like <laughs> yes. I, I keep, I mean, it's so it's like beautiful. I mean, but it's not intended for that, but it would be a great doorway. Oh, yeah. This horse, this horse meant so much to me. And yes. it, I wrote my first book. That I wrote a book horse. about him. <laughs> I know. It's incredible. Yes. So, what an honor to the horse also that started, yeah. you know, started your book writing career. Absolutely. But, but what I'm really excited about is you have a new book. Tell us about your newest book and what inspired you to take this one on and write this one. Okay. So this one, I'll show it again. This is the Foxes of Bel Air. It's Gallant Fox, Omaha and the Quest for the Triple Crown. That's like the subtitle. This is actually about the second and third Triple Crown winner. So Gallant Fox and Omaha, they were owned and bred by the same man, William Woodward, and trained by the same person, uh, Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons. And after I wrote the first book on Sir Martin, I felt like it was a natural progression to move to the next two. Because when I did the book proposal for the first book, part of doing a book proposal for a nonfiction book is they want you to talk about other titles or similar to the ones that you're doing. And so I had gone through and done, you know, quite a bit of combing through uh, secondhand stores and whatnot, trying to find other books and other Triple Crown winners. And of course, as I'm doing all this, I'm taking notes about who hasn't had books written about them. So it's like, here's the books that are existing. Here's the books that aren't. And now I have ideas. <laughs> so Very when smart. I finished that one, I was actually doing the book tour for the first book and I had a break. And so when I had that break, I was able to sit down and actually write three chapters for the book proposal so that I knew not just for me, but also for my publisher's edification that it was doable as a book. Like there was going to be enough content to actually make a book and what it was going to take to do the research for this one, because it's a slightly different time period. So I, I, I love it because they were owned by the same man, bred by the same man, same decade. And it was just a lot of fun to do another book like this, but with slightly more access because there's more material because it's a later time. And it was just, it was a lot of fun, ex except for it was during COVID. So it was a slightly different experience than the first one. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it wasn't a bit of an uphill battle for you because it was a different experience with through lockdown. So how did mm -hmm. you... How did you, you know, you shared a little with me before the show, but like, mm -hmm. how did you manage your writing career while you were do while all the things were going on in your home that were not like the first book? Well, by the time, so I started writing the book proposal in 2019 and I actually started writing full time in January of 2020. I spent a week right before lockdown in Kentucky at the Keelan Library doing a residency where I was able to spend the whole week getting hard copy research, going through books, kind of getting a lay of the land in terms of what was available to me and came home with like a bunch of, you know, materials. And immediately the next week, my kids were out of school. Everything was locked down. The library was not open for six months, so there was no accessing any of those resources, um, unless it was like 
unless I happened to be in the office and then I would send in a request and, you know, depending on what it was, sometimes I would get it immediately. And sometimes I would take a, you know, a few days to get what I needed because all I needed was like a scan or something. But I was also like virtually educating the kids. <laughs> and at this point, my youngest is in second going on third grade and my oldest was in fifth grade going into sixth grade. My husband started working from home. So we were tag teaming. So we had, you know, the oldest child who has some learning difficulties and then the youngest child who's, you know, fine and, and didn't need as much help. And so both of us are trying to get 40 hours a weekend while making sure our oldest child here, I think he needed to get through his classes because he's got these learning challenges that make it, you know, he needs a bit more help than the youngest child. Make sure the youngest child is getting through everything and that both of them are staying mentally, you know, fine all of us mentally fine, <laughs> fed, and happy. I will still remember this book for all the days <laughs> that I spent trying to shoo my children out of the office. Like I need two hours <laughs> where I'm uninterrupted so I can finish this thought because, you know, the moment they were done with class, they'd come in like, can I have some juice? <laughs> Like, did you walk by your father to ask you this question? Couldn't you just ask him? You know? <laughs> That's like that funny. kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, I, but I have a wonderfully supportive husband and a couple of children who now are like, this is old hat, whatever mom writes books, it's fine. <laughs> like they don't think anything of it anymore. <laughs> I have a door hanger that I actually put on my office door that says writer at work, do not mm. disturb to try and get people, my husband to think before he knocks on the door. But what I love that you shared that because it's still possible, even when so much crazy is going on and, and mm -hmm. routines change and life happens, it's still possible to stay committed to mm -hmm. your creativity and a project that you're excited about, even while all this is going on. So good on you for, for you. finishing it, meeting your deadlines and tackling it still while, you know, life happens, you know, so that's, it's just a great story that you can, you can still stay committed and get things done. It just takes a little more, right? <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. It's, I want people to take away from this that, you know, you have a goal mm -hmm. and you are by all means should stick to your goal. Mm -hmm. You're important. Your goals are important. And I having children, I think a lot of writers feel like their children should be their priority. Absolutely. They should be your children though. They need to see you work. They need to see that you're working. They need to see that you have something that's yours so that later when they're older and they have a partner who has, you know, ambitions, who has goals that they understand what that looks like and what it takes to support those kinds of things. And so they saw my husband supporting me and then vice versa. And, uh, you know, I'm in there making dinner and doing what I need to do to make sure he's got what he needs and he's doing the same thing. So if I'm traveling, my husband's like, you know, your mom's traveling. I got this. Like, it's not a big deal. So, I mean, I, my husband and I have set up our structures within our home where the children are integrated into this. They see what mom and dad are doing. They understand they play a role in it and that they need to, you know, not just let mom and dad be the one meeting their needs. They also need to figure out ways that they can help mom and dad meet their goals too. And so, you know, I'm hoping my children take away from this the value of like persistence. <laughs> mm -hmm.
<laughs> and partnership. I, I, I'm yes. so glad you shared that. I mean, that is amazing. Who, you know, yes, I have children and they are my priority, but I also have things that I want to accomplish in my life and setting mm-hmm. setting up for that. And then also showing showing your family that there's partnership involved, there's persistence mm-hmm. involved. There's a lot of things that are important. I love that. I love that you shared that. That was really yeah. powerful. Well, that's that was how we got through it, how mm-hmm. we got through lockdown. Because I mean, during COVID, there were a lot of days where you felt very much like, you know, all your world is shrunken down to this little bit. Mm-hmm. And like, I didn't want my mental health or my boys' mental health to be compromised by that. So, you know, it's like, you have to learn to balance. We as adults already learn how to, to balance things. And because I, I was talking to my husband about that last night, we were talking about division of labor in the house because I'm trying to get the boys to be more integrated into running the household because they're getting older. They're 11 and 15 and they need to be, to understand what it takes to run a house. And it's like, you know, they, they need to see us partnering they need to see us dividing up the labor and they need to see it not in a way that we saw it as children. Mm. It needs to be a different evolution. And, you know, that was kind of how we got through lockdown was creating new routines, creating, you know, new things that we can do with our children, getting them to understand the value of alone time, not just for them, but for us too. Like we're all like in this space together for hours and hours and hours and days on end. And it's like, you need to have your time to do your thing and ha- and not be constantly inundated by another person's presence. And your dad <laughs> and I need the same thing, you know? And now that they're out and about and they're doing more normal stuff, it's like, I need them to, I need to know they have empathy mm-hmm. so that when they leave the house, they have empathy, not just for themselves, but for the people around them. And like, they need to see mom and dad sharing. They need to see mom and dad sharing the load and, and taking on different roles, at different times, because that's what their lives are going to look like mm-hmm. when they're older. And I, they need to see mom working and mom being productive mm-hmm. because before mom was in a classroom and they didn't see that. They mm-hmm. saw, they just knew that mom left and went to work and came back. And it's like, now it's like, you know, I made something, <laughs> you know, I put it out in the world and like, I'm trying to contribute to, you know, something greater than myself. And I want them to have those same sorts of ambitions for themselves. Like not just get up and go to work, but like, what is, what does your work mean to you long-term and not just the work you're doing, but how you're doing it. Oh, I hope that makes that sense. So responsible. <laughs> That's such responsible parenting. And, and I love it. I, I just, I love everything about that. I'm so glad you shared that. Well, I, I think it's important because you, you feature a lot of writers who are women. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of women writers. And, I, you know, I want people who might be sitting here watching this going, I really would love to do this myself, but I feel stuck. Mm-hmm. Or I feel like, I'm not sure how I'm going to start. And it's like, just start, just figure it out. Just figure it like, think about your routine and what you can do maybe to, you know, integrate other people into the routine and delegate and, 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 you know, say, I need an hour to close my door and, and, you know, tell my family that I'm going to take this hour to do this thing and you know hopefully everyone will meet you there and say yes I can't wait to see what comes of your hour 
you oh. know, I'm going to do, I'm going to do what I can to help you. And, you know, at first, when I first started doing this and my kids were like, I don't understand why, you know, why you're bugged by me coming in asking for juice. And I was <laughs> like, because you're interrupting my concentration. It's like, if I walked in and you're doing a task and you're, I interrupt you, you're going to be uh, like, I was in the middle of a video game and now I've died because you're because you came in because like, you want because I mommy wants juice <laughs> yeah like mom needs you know mom and dad need that too and mm -hmm. I know it's hard when you're a parent especially if you're a stay-at-home parent because I did that too and to feel like you should be able to have time for yourself but you really should mm -hmm. I mean you're, you're a much better parent if you can take that time for yourself and I think the hard part is it's it's very overwhelming to build those into your routine so if you can kind of see what others have done and like, and we can have conversations about what we've done, mm -hmm. then we can have people take away from those conversations and kind of see how they can adapt what other people have done into their own routine. So this is a lot of this is born out of just, you know, I had two kids and I flat refused, you know, beyond a certain time to just stay home with them. <laughs> I was like, I am not staying home. Like I love them and I want to be a parent to them. And teaching was great because I could, I had breaks where I could have them and take care of them. But I was like, yo, y'all need to go back to work, to like daycare or school or whatever. Cause mom's got, <laughs> mom's got to work too. <laughs> and I, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I mean, really, I think that you probably just did a huge service to listeners of this show who are thinking, how am I going to do all this? Like, and, and just, I love how the conversation you so openly had about like training children to yes. contributions <laughs> in the family. I mean, kind of, you know, we train our horses, we have to train our children too. But yes. I love what you also said, there's somebody sitting there saying, I would really like to do this, looking at their lives and their families and their jobs and all the things. And like, how do I do this? But I love you said, just find an hour and just start and bring people to the table and help them commit to your goal and your dream and ask them for that hour, that magic mm -hmm. hour where you can turn Small. something out. Those little moments add up to mm -hmm. look at you, two, two books. You created something, you put it in the world <laughs> and you're not stopping, which I love. No, I, and you know, I, I'm not going to pretend this was easy. <laughs> There were plenty of days, especially during lockdown, which is why this book is so meaningful to me, not just because I wrote a book and here it is out in the world. No, like this book is meaningful to me because I survived <laughs> the experience and not just survived it. Like it was done on time. Mm -hmm. And I swear to gosh, Carly, I had days where I was like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to get this done. I don't know how I'm going to get, it's going to be crap and I'm gonna be like embarrassed and so far everyone that's read it the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive my editor who thinks I'm crazy because I'm constantly like oh my god it's, so, it's not the same as the first one he's like it's good <laughs> and then you know my husband he's like it's good stop it and it's like okay good because I swear there were days where I was like I don't know how this could get done <laughs> that's so normal I mean you even mm -hmm. did, and you should be very proud of yourself but you did it in, in like really adverse conditions yes. but it's hard even when it's, to write a book easy. even when all that stuff is going on yeah it's just being a creative and writing a book and putting the words on the page is challenging but it's so rewarding too it is and I still to this day marvel that I have that many words in my head 
right? <laughs> I mean, I'll be if you honestly. really think about it, yeah, it's like, <laughs> whoa, that I did that? How did that come oh. out of me? This is like 95,000 words. Like, where did 95,000 words come from? <laughs> That's incredible. So the Foxes of Bel Air, mm-hmm. why... Okay, so you mentioned a little earlier, like, why you chose this one. But, like, mm-hmm. what, I don't know, like, as you're doing your research or, you know, as you were learning about these horses and this family and this farm, like, what what made you, like, so excited to sink your teeth and, and write 95,000 words? This, like, the first one was about the first Triple Crown winner. And if you're a horse racing person, you know that the Triple Crown is, like, the end-all, be-all of accomplishments, really, in the sport. And if you're not a horse racing fan, you're very familiar with at least the Kentucky Derby and the whole experience and the traditions around it. So the first book was spent with a lot of this is all new and this is all pioneering. And it was a post antebellum world war one, very different time than in the sport than we're used to now with the second book, we're a lot closer to modern horse racing. So we're now shifting into a different time period. And I think that's one of the reasons why I liked it so much, because when I started doing it, I was like, I want to see what's changed in the sport. Cause to me, it's very important to look at where we've been so that we can appreciate where we are and then plan for where we're going. So that's my philosophy behind everything. Cause people know me as a horse racing historian. I do do more current events type stuff now for the work that I'm doing, but I'm very much rooted in if you want us to have a future that looks in any way like something positive, you have to reflect on where we've been. You have to look at how we got where we are. I spend a lot of time in horse racing, reading what other people are saying and listening to conversations that they're having. And to me, the history of the sport is really important because it gives us perspective on why we do things the way we do now. And so, and that's not just for horse racing, that's for any pursuit, regardless of, you know, what type of sport you're in or what type of field you're in, you know, looking at where you've been helps you really contemplate where you are and what you can do next. And so I'm very much like you should be invested in history because history has value. If nothing else, it's teaching you what not to do the next time. (laughs) But like for this book, I really wanted to see what had changed between doing the first book, which was set in 1919, 1920 and 1930, 1929, 1930 when this starts. And so there was the advent of the starting gate which is huge in horse racing. Um, The standing start is now, you know, we have this big contraption. There was some learning curve with that one for the sport. Um, There were several iterations before we landed on the one that we have now. Um, That was a big part of this. Uh, The whole idea of William Woodward and, you know, creating a the other there are other people who've done this before who had created you know whole farms and whole breeding operations with the you know express goal of winning but he did it with a like i have this childhood goal to win the epsom derby 
if you're an American that knows anything about horse racing, you know, the Epsom Derby is the progenitor of every other Derby or Derby <laughs> in the world. And so that was his goal. And he turned that into not just this, you know, breeding program that was dominant for a decade, but also into the triple crown because he was the first person to really send all of his horses on that path with the express purpose of winning those three races. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I identified not just the two horses because they happened to win the triple crown, but also because, you know, he was the person that solidified all this. Well, he wasn't the only one, but he started the process that solidified this into what we know today. And then also, and forgive me, but Omaha was the third triple crown winner and if you look at a list of like here's 13 triple crown winners here's where they're rated you'll inevitably see omaha kind of toward the bottom because he wasn't as consistent a racehorse as some of the other ones were he's the only american triple crown winner to race in england wow. like went you know on a boat <laughs> across the atlantic because this is before airplanes before you could ship a horse on an airplane <laughs> like put him on a boat two weeks later he was in england and then spent an entire season racing in england like no other triple crown winner has done that other american horses have done that but to send a horse that has done this and then you know we're gonna do one better and go to a completely different country and try to win the ascot gold cup by the way not wow. just race in england but to win you know at royal ascot on literally the sports like biggest day omaha's you know, he attempted the Ascot Gold Cup, came in second by a nose, and it went down as the number one race of the 20th century in England. No idea, not a clue about this until I started doing the book. And I was like, for real, this is what happened? Wow. I have, I have read so many things about the Triple Crown and this and that. Had, it had never landed with me that that was what had happened. And so when you read the book, if you actually, if you read Fox's, pick it up and read it. The the prologue is the 1936 Ascot Gold Cup. Because I was like, you know what? We're going to start at this like monumental moment. And I'm going to pull you into the story with this. Ooh which is basically, it was Omaha's last race. It was his next to last race, but it's this huge moment in the sport because it was like, you know, William Woodward had such a you know wealth of horses that he didn't need <laughs> this triple crown winner to stay in America. So he sent him to England and dueled for two and a half miles over the Ascot Heath with the filly that beat him by a nose which was not a photo finish because they didn't have photo finish cameras during that era. Wow. <laughs> I know, amazing. right? You know, and, th and that's so interesting too. Like, I love that you're a historian. How many things do you think are overlooked that only are uncovered when people start researching to write a book? Like, that's a story that you said you'd never heard of before. That's an incredible story. You I, just I, brought it back into, like, being. I, I, I think with the thing about history is that, you know, that one of the reasons why I do it is, is primarily I wrote this book first and I suspected when I started doing research on the first book that there were a lot of details that had been omitted mm. either by just time, you know, the intervals between our, our time periods 
or convenience or, you know, just whatever. And I think history is rich with those sort of untold stories that kind of lurk beneath the surface and just need the right person to bring them out. Mm. So that's sort of, I guess what I've self-appointed myself to be <laughs> with that person. <laughs> My publisher has no problem with this. They love it. They're like, you're great. You should keep doing stuff like this. I'm like, thank you. Okay. They, so, I think it's uh, awesome. Yeah. It, it's, you know, I'm an academic by trade. Like my background was, I had initially gone into teaching and had wanted to teach writing to, you know, students, especially students like me who were educated you know, in school systems that weren't always provided with all the resources they needed. And so I was always very much like motivated to help my students find their, their writing process to help them maximize the talent that they already had. Mm-hmm. That was always my goal. And then when I started writing for myself, I just, I got to the point where I was like, I've done a lot of work for other people. I haven't done a lot of stuff for myself. And this is what I wanted to do <laughs> was I wanted to do the history of the sport because that's really what sucked me in to begin with anyway. Like mm-hmm. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I've never, I never touched a horse until I was 15, <laughs> you know, but I fell in love with them through the stories that I read and the stories that I saw on TV. And so if I can do that for somebody else by, you know, doing the history of the sport, then I mean, heck yeah, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Done. Is incredible. Good on you. You are doing it. You're you're telling the stories and inspire sparking it in someone else. And thank heaven for the people that wrote the stories and did the Mm -hmm. shows that attracted you. You know, that's how so many of us come to love horses, you know, because we're not all blessed to have them, right? So we read Mm -hmm. about them and we learn about them through the books that are written. So that's why I love this podcast so much and all the others that come on. (laughs) So thank you so much. Boiling it down in in the foxes of Bel Air. Is there like a message for you? I love how you opened it with kind of this untold story and you pulled people into the conversation. Is there kind of a message in in there that you hope like readers will grasp when they close close the book and had read the final page? I would like for people to take away, if nothing else, with the power of dreaming. Mm-hmm. Because William Woodward, if you read enough about him, he started out in a very privileged position. He was the son of, you know, a financier. He had access to, you know, money and opportunity. So, you know, he started out with a leg up that most people, but, you know, he had a dream. And there's a lot of people who have, who are in certain positions who don't necessarily have to do anything with their position. They can just, you know, live a life that they've been expected to live based on what their parents did and continue in that direction. He had a very specific goal, like a very specific, you know, dream. He wanted to achieve this. He wanted to be, you know, win on the sport's biggest days, win the Epsom Derby, win the English Classics, which turned into winning the American Classics and on and on and on. And he devoted a lot of time and money to the sport. Of horse racing and he was a hands-on person too as much as he could be so he didn't have to do those things he could have just had a family worked as a banker you know lived your basic upper class life from the first part of the 20th century the victorian era into you know world war ii he didn't have to do this, <laughs> you know, because just sailed on his yacht and, and been a banker and they would be fine. 
but he had a goal and yes, he had more wealth and privilege than a lot of people did to actually meet that goal. But in the process of pursuing it, he put a lot of people to work. Mm-hmm. You know, he made a lot of difference in other people's lives. You know, he, he helped the sport become what we know it is now. And so I'm, I'm troubled by trying to talk about dreams when you talk about someone that has a lot of, you know, resources already available to them. But I mean, honestly, like any, anything worth doing needs to start with a dream or a goal. Mm-hmm. So whether it's something massive like this, where, you know, he founded this estate and, you know, bred all these horses and, and made history basically, or whether it's, you know, I'm going to write a book. So if nothing else, hopefully from the book, you take away that dreams can have a lot of power mm-hmm. and a lot of power, not just for an individual, but for a lot of other people too. So that's ultimately, uh, it's, <laughs> it's a hard question to answer because he started out with a lot of money <laughs> and when he finished, he had a lot of money, <laughs> but you know, he, he literally had a dream and like the entirety of the sport was changed in some ways because he had a dream. <laughs> It, but I love how you sum that up, though. He used his resources rather than sitting on his laurels. He used his resources yeah. to, you know, they were there to help him achieve a dream, but he he didn't have to have a He didn't have to want to put anything out there. I think you summed that up really beautifully. Dreams are important. You know, you never know what the, where they're going to take you. I love that. And then, you know, whether a book is like, a New York Times bestseller, or it sells just a few copies, it does touch the reader, someone. Mm-hmm. And the I think the, the holding that book and knowing I have that many words in my head, and I actually <laughs> made that where did that come from? Yeah. Is like nothing can deflate that. I mean, it's it's yeah. incredible that that we have that experience. I always um, want to motivate people to try, mm-hmm. like, especially writers try there are 8 billion people on this planet (laughs) somewhere someone wants to read something you have to say and you will be surprised at how many people will want to read what you have to say because I think a lot of us when you're a writer it's a very solitary pursuit you spend a lot of time on your own you know doing your work and you don't you occasionally get to have podcasts or you get to have conversations with other writers or you get to go into a writer's group and talk to other writers. But, you know, ultimately writing is a solitary pursuit and it's very easy to fall into the trap of, I don't, people are not going to be interested in what I have to say. Like, dude, if you have a dream to write a book, like heck fire, go write the book, mm-hmm. <laughs> just start. Yeah. And then if, you know, it may not be the world, you know, beater that you want it to be. Okay, well, that's fine. That's one book. You did it once, you can do it again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So that's that's always my overriding thing. Like, I'm never going to tell anybody you should not try. You should try. Mm-hmm. It, you may not be where you want to be in terms of your talent or your style or whatever. That's fine. Okay, I the person I am at 46 is not the person I was at 16. I will tell you that. Mm-hmm. And I've been writing since I was 12. <laughs> but, you know, I gained a lot through that time period. And I do believe that every writer has the ability to, you know, as long as they're trying, as long as they're pursuing and dreaming to do something great with it. And you just don't know until you do it what's going to what's going to come about. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yes. Let's all try. Keep yes. trying no matter what. And I love it. If you do it once. The first one is, I think, the biggest hurdle. If you can do it mm-hmm. once, you can mm-hmm. do it again. 
and, and your again. writing grows and changes and morphs mm-hmm. and gets better and better. With your new book, I, I it was a lockdown book. You wrote it during COVID. Yes. Now things have opened back up. How are you getting the message out about this book? I think you mentioned a couple signings. Like, how are you gonna? How are you planning to reach readers with with the new work? Oh well, that's a really good question. <laughs> that's the one I think I spend the most time on. You got to show off that tattoo. Well, there's that. <laughs> the, you know what? Writing the book was actually the easy part. I think because <laughs> other than like having you know two children under feet the whole time and trying to like get everyone sorted to make sure they were they were settled finishing the book I was like oh yeah I finished it oh now comes the fun (laughs) part which is getting it out into the world and so it's done it's pretty it's you know I it's it's real which is great and so I've got a a calendar page on my blog where I've got all my events listed. And then I do an inordinate amount of social media, which I really enjoy, enjoy (laughs) because I do a lot of it. And that's like my main way of really reaching people is doing social media. And I've tried desperately to find like an intern or something to, I want to, (laughs) can I be your project please? Because I'm constantly worried that I'm not doing enough. And if I talk to my publisher, they're like, you're doing plenty. Mm -hmm. And they, they like to send new writers to me and go like, do what Jennifer does. And I'm like, no, no, like, no, but I'm on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, Instagram. And so I try to do outreach that way. Mm -hmm. I'm attempting TikTok. I am not a Luddite by any stretch. And and like, it's been wonderful because my, the marketing team at um, my publisher, the University of Press of Kentucky have done a wonderful job of providing me with graphics so that I don't necessarily have to do graphics because I'm a writer. Like mm-hmm. I don't have a graphic design background. Mm-hmm. I can't do this the same way. So they will do that. And then, uh, <laughs> and then of course, as I do book events, like in-person events, finally, I will be trying to do TikToks and recording everything, you know, on, you know, with my phone and, mm-hmm. and try to share that on social media as much as possible. I, I am getting to do a lot of the events that I did in 2019. Um, I will be at the Bel Air mansion. So like, you know, William Woodward's mansion in Maryland is actually a museum now. And so I get to do an event there, which I'm so excited about. (laughs) And then uh, I've got like a long list of stuff I'm working on. It's been a lot of fun. And, Mm -hmm. and I think it's so funny that you, that you were saying like, your publisher sends people to you do what Jennifer's doing, but you're like, Oh no, no. <laughs> you know, that is such an attribute to us being our own worst enemies because you are very visible Jennifer. And I think that you do awesome, uh, awesome <laughs> amount of marketing of your books. And I think you do a great job and we're our own worst enemies. So like marketing is this ever existing black hole that you constantly have to go into. But what I love that you said is you're embracing it. You're thinking of unique, different things to try. That's it. Like, just try things. If it doesn't work, it's okay. But you're willing to put in the effort to be visible. You're Mm -hmm. scheduling events. You're doing a great job with your social. You're here on the podcast. I mean, you're doing a great job. I'm. I'm I appreciate it. Yeah, but it's a it's it's a learning process too. And I I do want people, you know, if you are in the process of putting out a book, especially if you're self-publishing, mm-hmm. so much of it falls on you. Mm-hmm. So do what you can to kind of 
see what other people have done mm -hmm. and maybe have conversations with other writers and ask some questions about what they've done, what's worked for them, what hasn't worked for them. Don't spend money on anything until you absolutely have to. So like, don't go on Facebook and get a Facebook ad. Find someone who's done that before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> ask them how well that worked out for them and then go from there because, you know, I look at Facebook is great, but your your you know list is curated based on who you follow or who you're connected to. And then Instagram can be challenging if you don't have a lot of visuals because Instagram is so focused on visual. Mm -hmm. So it's like you have to know as a writer what your assets are and like, okay, well, I don't know a ton of people, but I'm gonna find ways to connect with people on Facebook, join a couple of groups you know, that kind of stuff. And if you're not a graphics person, like I am not, you know, find someone, find a friend <laughs> who is good at that stuff. And then, you know, maybe you can sit down and learn some stuff from them. And it's, it's, it's a lot easier than it looks. It's just time consuming. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why people are intimidated by it because it is time consuming. And I, I mean, I've got friends who are social media people who are like, well, you can schedule all these posts out. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I, I'm, I'm aware but a lot of times my stuff is kind of like, oh, yep. I just got an idea for that. Like I was in the shower thinking yep. about what I had to do that day. You're a writer. Like, mm -hmm. unless you have a marketing degree, this is not your field of study. <laughs> you know, like just kind of learn and see what other people have done and, and, and take cues from them. Because that's honestly what I did was mm -hmm. like, look and see what other people are doing and, and not ride their coattail so much as kind of, okay, I can take that and make it mine mm -hmm. in some way. I love that. Educate. I always say this, educate, educate, educate yourself, especially when you're new to the, the table, like talk to other people who have been there mm -hmm. before you look at what other people are doing that inspires you. And, and like you said, how do I, how could I, how could I use this idea and make it my own? But I, I also, what I love is I think you are like excited about trying these different things on social media and that's the thing like get you you have to be excited about it because mm -hmm. if it's an obligation then you know if it's an obligation and you don't like social you, you there's other ways to reach readers mm -hmm. you know maybe pick one channel do a little there yeah but like and you keep saying we're writers I think the best thing you can do is keep building your catalog and mm -hmm. spending time writing like people yes. will find you you know and connecting with other authors helps you you know pick the best things that'll get you the most visibility and then move on and write that next book. Yeah. And like, don't be afraid to talk to other writers. Right. Because nine times out of 10, most other writers want to talk about what they're doing anyway. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I have never, I rarely, rarely run into someone who does not want to talk about what they're working on. <laughs> I mean, whether it's social media or books or whatever, yeah. it is rare that you talk to another writer and they're just kind of closed mouth about what they're working on because most of us really do want to connect with other writers mm -hmm. you know because it is a solitary pursuit and you do learn something from talking to other people so I I find it rewarding to engage like that other authors are not our competition when we lift mm -hmm. ourselves up we're all writing about horses everyone gets lifted. Um, mm -hmm. That's why I love spotlighting and talking to other authors. Yes. So yes. the door is open. Don't be afraid to step through it and, and ask other authors questions and, and build relationships because there's so many cool opportunities that have come out 
for me through connecting with other authors, like opportunities to do book events where we're all together, opportunities to meet up at conferences, opportunities to email swap, opportunities to do giveaways, like all sorts mm-hmm. of things happen when you connect with other authors. And Jennifer, thank you. I, I think you said that so well. The root of all of this is happiness. Like I, 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 I love what you're creating with your life. I love how you're handling, you know, your family. I love what you're up to. I love your writing. I, I love your energy. Thank you for sharing so much wisdom oh, yes. on the show today. Would you share with listeners where they can learn more about you and your books? I have a website that's Jennifer Kelly writes. So it's my name and the word writes. And then linked on that page, you can find the blog that I did for the first book, which is still extant. I just don't update it anymore, but all the content is still there. The blog I have for foxes, which is not as healthy as the first one, but it's functional. And then, (laughs) and then links to where you can find me in other places. I contribute to America's Best Racing. I contribute to Twin Spires Edge. And then I contribute to the Racing Biz. You can find me on those websites too. But that's where to find me. I have so loved having you on the show again, Jennifer. Thank thank you. you. Thank you so much for the gift of your time. Yes. Thank you, Carly, for the gift of your time and your enthusiasm for other writers. We really appreciate you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.